SPF is a story of extremes. No kidding. He is the CEO of FTX, the hottest offshore bucket shop exchange. Then it's all a fraud. He's got nothing. He's thrown in a Bahamanian jail. He takes one look at what life in jail looks like, decides to throw in the towel, not fight extradition. And now he's out on bail under home arrest at his parents' home in Palo Alto, California. $250 million worth bail at that, too. That's no small chunk. Which he only could have gotten from defrauding investors. So he's allowed to bail himself out with stolen money. I mean, he's on top again, I think. I mean, technically, I think it's his parents that are bailing him out that posted the bail. Um, They, however, were paid by FTX in form of real estate. And actually, his dad did have a line item. And in testimony to Congress last week, the new CEO of FTX specifically said, yes, he received multiple payments. So his dad was paid by FTX. Like you broke down recently, the entire cultural movement that Sam was part of, his parents were part of, they likely played a very key role in getting SPF into the position to finance and run FTX. And yet his folks are allowed to bail him out. I just don't like it. And also SPF is allowed to leave the house for exercise purposes and other reasonable reasons he can leave the house. He has an ankle monitor. Wow. So this is a guy who really, it's like reality is struggling to enforce consequences on him. And he just, he just shrugs them off. He's just got this superpower called privilege and jail time being thrown in a cell, whatever. It just doesn't work on him, it seems. I mean, now that he's home at his folks' mansion, he can, you know, get on the computer. He can communicate with people using untraceable communications tools. He undoubtedly could get access to crypto wallets. Uh, He can counsel with his parents and strategize with his folks who have been involved from the beginning and their legal counsel who can just come and set up operation at the house now. I mean, this is a massive victory for him. It really is because his parents likely did something wrong too in this whole fraud. Yeah. Seems like his dad in particular probably should be charged with something too. And the sub story to all of this, right, is Caroline Ellison uh, seems to have had a plea deal with the DOJ and she's going to have some charges, but they're going to be reduced on exchange of information. Same with Gary Wang. Also, plea deal with the DOJ, going to have reduced punishment. And who was Gary again? Gary is one of the uh, co-founders of Alameda Research, and he's been involved. He's been involved towards the top since the beginning. It was SBF at the top, right? And then Caroline and Gary were like right there in the right-hand side of SBF. And wasn't Sam Trabuco also part of Alameda, but then he mysteriously decided that he just wanted to sail his yacht around the Caribbean earlier this year? Yeah, and he also is still running some other firm. He has like some venture firm that he also runs. That's still semi-active, un- unbelievably. Wow. Yeah. Uh, some company just announced a deal. It's kind of unbelievable. So uh, they seem to have turned on Sam. You know, they've, I think, I think the the case is probably pretty firm against Sam. It just depends on how hard they want to hit it. Sam's obviously going to play the uh, ignorance and, oh, it was all an accident. I didn't know what I was doing. But you know what? Those are just the kinds of things us podcasters can get away with. He's going to, I think he's going to be held to more of an account. <laughs> I am skeptical. Mm, I hope. I hope. I hope. I keep on hearing about this allegation that Binance has some problem that first there, and I don't mean to dismiss it because I'm sure Binance has all sorts of problems, but there was this Mazars International, which was their quote unquote auditor, not actually performing an audit, but doing some sort of 
very limited attestation to Binance having some amount of money and funds somewhere. And you can tell from the tone of my voice and my air quotes that I'm holding up that this is clearly BS. It's not any sort of document or process that should really engender much trust in Binance. And I don't think anyone should trust Binance. And then there were massive withdrawals out of Binance in the tune of over a billion dollars a day for a few days last week, I think. And now nothing. So what's going on there, Chris? There was also that really bad appearance that CZ had on CNBC where he was kind of playing a little verbal games to kind of avoid answering the questions about what happens if uh, regulators come crawling back, come clawing back some of the uh, the money that they got from FTX. And um, I think people are really super sensitive to scams and fraud in this exchange market. I think the unspoken thing here about Binance is people are just not really sure about all of Binance's backend connections um, and kind of their primary money on ramps and things like that. But to their credit, they've so far survived all these withdrawals, right? Like they have so far been able to accommodate them. Well, and Binance also has that BNB token, which is exactly the same thing, basically, yes. as the FTX token. Well, don't you think ultimately that's the red flag in any exchange that kind of operates with one of these tokens is probably a, a big hazard? Yeah, of course, because they've printed money and then they create this flywheel system where they incentivize users of the exchange to hold this token and pretend that it's money because they'll give them lower fees and pay their Netflix bill or something like that. And then, I mean, it's honestly the exact same kind of process of the U.S. government trying to find places to park U.S. government debt. You know, there are all these coercive and non-coercive incentives to hold it. At the end of the day, the BNB token is created out of thin air. It's worth nothing. And Binance is likely using it as collateral somewhere on their balance sheet, which basically means that depending on how much of that is on their balance sheet, they might be insolvent, depending on yep. whatever yep. the price yep. of this manipulated token is on that day. Yeah. So if you've got coins on there, get them off. I mean, I know we say that over and over again, but it really does seem like it needs repeating, unfortunately. Never trust these kinds of operations. That If they have a token, that's a red flag. Another thing is we've heard various noises from different regulatory bodies that they think something's weird there. You know, that kind of common FUD that they throw around. Uh, and then about 20 hours ago, as we record, the uh, Drug Enforcement Agency of the U.S. government alleges that a global drug cartel was using Binance to launder tens of millions of dollars. Uh, roughly 15 to 40 million in illicit profits could have been funneled through Binance, according to the search warrant. It just feels like this is laying some groundwork maybe to come after Binance or or at least make Binance, make it hard for Binance to operate Binance US specifically. I mean, of course, dirty money moves through Binance. It's a financial institution that plugs into a whole bunch of cryptocurrency blockchains and legacy payment systems. Don't they have a Binance payment system that does quick payments using traditional credit card processors as well. Oh, how convenient. They tie into the traditional financial system in a gray but effective way. And that's their secret sauce. Exchanges, their killer app is their connection to the traditional financial system. I was thinking about this today. On-ramps to Bitcoin is not a solved problem. And I don't think it ever can be because when we buy Bitcoin, we're exiting a controlled fiat financial system. And I don't mean to sound 
conspiratorial when I say that. It is clearly controlled. There are a lot of rules about who's allowed to be a bank, what you can do with money when it's not just paper currency in your physical wallet. But if it's money in a bank account, suddenly there are all these restrictions on who you can give it to and how. And it, if that's never occurred to you, just you know, try to send me money. Try to send the show money. Send the Bitcoin Dad Pod five bucks in dollars from your bank account. You can't do it. It's impossible. We'd have to jump through all sorts of hoops and get registered and, and do a lot of things to make that possible to have like a show Venmo account or something like that. We don't want to do that, but that's the killer app of Binance. It's the association yeah. with that traditional system and then also giving you access to these cryptocurrency tokens. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Of course. If I was going to launder money, I'd call CZ immediately. That would be my first call, probably. <laughs> In a flex, I suppose, Binance US has agreed to buy Voyager's assets for $1.02 billion. I thought that was kind of interesting. Then also there's news that Binance has joined some lobbying efforts in DC for obvious reasons. I think they feel a little bit of pressure um, and Binance's vice president of public affairs expressed the hope that the partnership would lead to clear regulations for the crypto industry. They have nothing but all of the best intentions and they hope it leads to the clearest of regulations. <laughs> Just to return to this Voyager bankruptcy asset buy, yeah. This yeah. makes no sense to me. Why on really? earth? So is the deal that they're scooping up all the assets for some fire sale price and then they uh, essentially get the assets and the bankruptcy estate gets the cash and can give the debtors or the creditors of Voyager a like a payout out of this cash they get from Binance? Or is the idea that they're buying the whole company and assuming their liabilities, including their crypto assets? I think the latter. There is some talk about trying to make customers whole. This was the SBF playbook, right? Is they, even while they were failing themselves, he was buying and rescuing up these companies and then he was using their assets as collateral to continue to move on, to proceed forward. It seems different though, because Binance isn't actually buying the company. They're just buying... Getting the assets, right. So they're saying, hey, you need to raise right. dollar bill cash to pay your creditors. So we'll buy your illiquid crypto tokens for what we say is a reasonable price and you can have dollar cash. So they're not actually exposing themselves to the liability of buying the company yeah. and owing all the creditors billions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, that's why I kind of went to like the it's a flex in a bit because it's kind of like saying, look, even though it's a bear market and everybody thinks that we're about to collapse, we can go drop a bill on these assets. Yeah, I mean, and we know that in the past, buying the bottom of bear markets, even some of the illiquid altcoins, if they survive the bear market, there might be some financial dollar gains there. That's what people have done in the past to some success, I think. Oh, is that how you do it? Oh, now I know. Well, did you see that? What is it called? Like crypto secrets, those tweets where people send private messages to some account and then they, they share them publicly, but anonymously. And someone oh, said, God, no. Oh, so sad. He's like, I sent 900000 or $300,000 to FTX the day before it went under. I was going to buy Ethereum at the bottom of the bear and use that to get a house. And now oh. I lost everything. You know, it's just like, holy crap. But SBF's doing great. So that's good. <laughs> he's, he's, he's home with mom and dad eating, eating mom's home cooking and uh, cracking up on a MacBook, logging into uh, some web UI, no doubt, and 
chatting with people. Home for Hanukkah. <laughs> yeah, he's home for the holidays. I'm sure he's getting his chat apps logged in. He's he's getting his seed phrases into Sparrow or whatever he might have. You know, I, you know, I, I'm I'm happy for him. I'm just he seems pretty ADD. Do you think he's going to go on Tinder while he's on? <laughs> well, Court City is allowed outside for reasonable amounts of exercise. So it depends on go. what you count as exercise, I guess. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Thursday, December 22nd, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with... Oh, who? Me? Oh, hey. Uh, Chris. Welcome back, everybody. Hey. <laughs> this is our holiday episode, which means it's just like a normal episode, except... Except what? It's less structured? There's no rules. <laughs> no rules. Yeah. Uh, Chris is going to yeah. sing at a certain point <laughs> yeah yeah we're gonna take the pod mobile actually i'm just gonna go do uh, some singing around the neighborhood you know do a little caroling <laughs> right we're going to record from the back of a sleigh the f- oh it's gonna yeah the the 12 days of satoshi is the song i'm gonna be singing God, that would have been a great program we should have thought of that <laughs> we have a lot of news stories that don't really come together to form a specific narrative they're more like updates to stories that have been ongoing throughout the year we also have a economic section, which is Lynn Alden's December newsletter, which again touches on many themes we've discussed during the year, specifically around sovereign debt and how that leads to an inflationary decade. We also have a technology section that will touch on one of my favorite subjects, which is Paul Stork's drive chain concept. He's formed a company to promote the drive chain software, and that should be interesting to hear about. We have an incredible Bitcoin education section, which is the Bitcoin Optech year in review. In one sitting, you could learn about an entire year of Bitcoin development. Really, really great resource there. And we also have some holiday recommendations. That's right. Some fun things uh, you can listen to over the holidays with your family, be they Bitcoiners or no coiners or even Shutter altcoiners. Something for everyone to enjoy. We have a correction and some boosts, and that's going to be our show. Pew pew. I'm looking forward to it. A correction two weeks in a row. It's, is that a record? I think so. When we receive a correction, regardless of the information channel, I put it in because it's great to have that audience engagement. So we've seen the Bitcoin miners have a rough couple of months and some pretty significant developments that'll probably ultimately result in hopefully some some shakeups there, but hopefully not too much damage. You know what I mean? Like, I'd love to see the mining market shake up a little bit, redistribute the hash. But I at the same time, I don't want to see like this massive capitulation and failure of some of these operations. It's been a hard year for mining in general because the Ethereum mining industry was basically taken behind the woodshed and shot by the oh, yeah. proof of stake upgrade. And some of them moved to mine Bitcoin. Apparently, there was a jump in hash rate around that Ethereum upgrade. And Core Scientific, they're interesting because they were, I think, one of the first large-scale Bitcoin mining operations. They Their strategy was to find old industrial facilities in the U.S. I think their biggest facilities were in the South, like in Georgia or something. And they'd find these old industrial plants because they had good power hookups and Maybe they could kind of convert the buildings to do that clever tier zero data center airflow thing that's good for cooling ASICs cheaply. And they just went hog wild for, I don't know, five five or more years, I think. And now they're bankrupt because they turned themselves into an ETF during the bull market where they accumulated Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And in retrospect, that was a terrible idea because it means that they kind of double exposed their 
share price and cash flows to the volatile Bitcoin price. They must have been permabills. They must be permabills like us because when Bitcoin was hitting 60K, they weren't selling it, which is what miners should do when the mayor multiple gets high during a bull market. That's been, I think, the success of our local mining friend, Malachi. His strategy was always to sell the tops during bull markets. And that's a sustainable mining model, it seems. Whereas all of these public miners that tried to lever up the Bitcoin on their balance sheet to stimulate their share price, they've all crashed during this bear market. Yeah, I guess the problem is that you got to identify that top. And if maybe Core Scientific was thinking the top was more like 100K, then at 60K, they're doubling down, right? And, you know, they are actually even now still cash flow positive, but it's just insufficient to repay the debt financing that they used to buy all the equipment, right? So they, <laughs> they, they took out a bunch of loans to buy more gear at the top of the ASIC price market, and now they got to pay the bill on that. But it, it, it sounds like... I guess this is good. Instead of liquidating, the company's going to continue just regular op- uh, mining operations while they sort all this out. And it's projected they have roughly 5% of the hash rate. So I mean, they seem like a pretty significant company. But I, I bet ultimately they're going to have to sell off some of those units, which will distribute the hash rate. That's sort of how the market cleanses itself, I suppose. But yeah, they, you know, I wonder, I just, I try to get in the headspace. And I think they were looking at the monetary policy and they were looking at the debt burdens of the government. And I think it's understandable to think that the money printer is always going to remain on at this point forward. Like, I think maybe people thought we had entered a new era where there'd always be loose, easy money and low interest rates. And we are technically still in a pretty low interest rate environment, historically speaking, if you look at like the 80s. So I think people just thought, well, if it's always going to be this way, then this is the strategy forward. Number going to go up. It's number go up technology. Right. And I think what is easy to miss is that the path to a million dollar Bitcoin is incredibly volatile. And so over a five year period, that line, that signal is very clear. But on any one to three year period, it gets very choppy. And you can't really survive to see the outcome if you can't live through the volatility of the journey. And what is happening with Core, their inability to finance themselves in a tighter credit market, this is kind of a microcosm of the rot that exists throughout the fiat economy because a decade of ultra low interest rates has made many companies into zombies. Core is a zombie company. If you can't meet your expenses out of cash flows, you need external financing to keep going. This is also the startup model. And there are large companies that are publicly traded that are caught in this trap. And they would have either reformed their business practices and gotten more competitive if they hadn't been exposed to free money for so long, or they would have gone bankrupt. And either is fine. So when you have this financial repression environment of ultra low interest rates, you kind of get this buildup of zombie companies. And then as interest rates rise, you now have a crisis because instead of having 10 years and one big company goes bust every year, you have 10 years of just economic expansion. And then in the 10th year, all 10 companies go bust and it's a massive recession. So this is a problem that's been building up for a long time. And we're probably going to see this in the non-Bitcoin economy as well. Yeah, that might that might be a big part of what 2023 is about. Um, I, I really think Bitcoin is at the very leading edge of that wave. And so it's hit there first. And the impacts of that are felt the most severely because it is such a nascent, shallow market as well. But the wave continues on. And I was just wondering, as you were describing that, 
what happens if we enter like a two-year bear market? We are, we're about, what, 13 months into a bear market right now when it kind of started in last November. And I could see another 12, 13 months easily. I could see the official recession not even kicking off for another nine months or something. A two-year Bitcoin bear market would be the best because maybe all those crappy scam podcasts would finally wrap it up because they can only survive a short bear, in my opinion, because those scam coins, those non-Bitcoin altcoins, they hit lower lows and higher highs than Bitcoin because of their manipulated market cap. So, right, right. You know, bring the bear. Yeah. And you know, it's not really a market bottom yet because people still think the price is going to go up. And we're only truly living the bear market when everybody has given up hope that the price is ever going back up again. Right. When OG Bitcoiners are throwing in the towel and buying government bonds, then the bottom is in. <laughs> I wonder though. I, I agree in some ways these these bear markets are very cleansing and I'm I'm really grateful that we do get them because I think Bitcoin long term is healthier as a result. But I wonder if there's a breaking point. Not forever, but just for like years. Uh, maybe, you know, another 10 years or something, because I wonder if if Mt. Gox hadn't happened and all and, and, and a lot of that hadn't gone sideways. I wonder if we would see more Bitcoin adoption, more pay now with Bitcoin buttons, because there were more back in the early days of Bitcoin. There were more merchants online accepting Bitcoin than there are today. And I think when Mt. Gox collapsed and all the shenanigans I think people pulled away and I think FDX takes some credibility, even though it's not anything to do with Bitcoin. I think it takes credibility away from the idea. And I think a prolonged suppressed price also costs credibility and more and more people will just, you know, confirm more and more people's thoughts. Oh, it's never going anywhere. It's never coming back up. You know, your uh, Peter Schiff's will have two years of being right about Bitcoin and people will buy into that narrative. And I think if that happens too much, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense, and it can harm the longer term adoption. And I don't think it's like, you know, you zoom out a hundred years. I don't know if it really matters, but I think if you zoom out 10, I think it does. And that's kind of a bummer because it might mean that maybe it's our sixties or our seventies before Bitcoin's really getting up there in value instead of, you know, my fifties. I wouldn't fight the cycle because we know that this pattern of all-time highs and crashes exists in every Bitcoin halvening cycle. And it's just another cycle. I mean, that's in early 2024, right? That's April. It's kind of on target for April Fool's actually right now. That would be uh, sooner than later, right? I mean, that'd be all of 2023 that things are a bummer. But okay, let me ask you, let me, let me reframe. Let's say it's June of 2024 and the price is just dragging out. It's like it's like $8,000. Do you reevaluate? Reevaluate Bitcoin? No, just that the price will eventually go back up. Oh, no, of course not. I mean, the fundamentals of Bitcoin literally get better every day, because as you were telling me, there was another over a trillion dollar U.S. government spending bill that just passed, and that's going to be entirely deficit financed. So the, not to tease Lynn Alden's article, but the government debt spiral is getting worse, not better. And that means that monetary inflation is inevitable and Bitcoin is designed to insulate you from monetary inflation. Bitcoin cannot insulate you from animal spirits and financial market bubbles because nobody can. The Federal Reserve's trying to centrally manage the financial system and the dollar can't protect you from bubbles. So why would a distributed protocol be able to protect you from bubbles? (laughs) Nothing can. Yeah. And I think also the adoption for Bitcoin, I'm always thinking about it in terms of the narrative in the West and adoption, you know, trends in the West. But the reality is it's a worldwide currency. It could, you know, there could be folks in other parts of the world that start seeing the usefulness of it. If they start wanting something outside of their perhaps 
perhaps failing economic system and adoption begins picking up there. I mean, there's, it's really hard to say uh, what, what really brings the next bull market. I've seen speculation that it's going to be regulation, that once uh, we get through all these regulatory hurdles and if Bitcoin survives and it's not, you know, operation in the U.S. isn't significantly harmed, that that's going to kick off the next price bull run. Um, like you said, there's also the, the halving theory. Either way, I, I don't really know. But I feel like if we are lucky, if we're fortunate, we'll at least make it to 2024 with a low price. And I would imagine that if the U.S. economic situations begin to turn south and get worse, that the price may go down another level, right? Because we seem to have this drop, then we go sideways for a while, and then the macro situation changes, and then we drop again, and we flirt with lower prices, and then we kind of stabilize at a new level, like 16,000 is where we've been at while we record. And I could see that dropping one more time or even even a time after that potentially that's totally possible that'd be great that would be fantastic news because i'd stack the crap out of that i don't think about the price that much just because i've been so bad at trying to predict it in the past i've given up in a way at the same time if we think about what drives the bitcoin price on the one hand you have people coming into bitcoin and this is when bitcoin is dismissed as a ponzi scheme because with any fixed asset as more people come in the price goes up and it's true of bitcoin it's true of apple stock the difference is you can't print more bitcoin and you can print more apple stock but that's just one driver of demand for bitcoin the other demand for bitcoin is institutional there are large institutional holders of bitcoin the largest being the gbtc trust the grayscale bitcoin investment trust and these institutional buyers, while they're credited with being quote unquote smart money, they are actually in many cases very short term oriented because the managers of institutional financial products have quarterly performance benchmarks and yearly KPIs. And so they're actually incredibly sensitive to short term movements in the market in prices, especially Bitcoin's price, because it's so volatile. So that means that in Bitcoin bear markets, I think there is net divestment from financial institutions and that drives the price lower. And that's totally reasonable and totally fine. And it just means that they'll FOMO in in the next bull market when the price starts to shoot up because, again, this is constrained supply. And as the Bitcoin price gets cheaper, hodlers buy it. And Bitcoin hodlers, you can see their behavior on chain. They are crazy from a traditional finance perspective. When Bitcoin goes into a hodler's wallet, it never leaves. Hodlers never sell Bitcoin in any significant amount. And you might say, oh, well, there's a price where everybody sells. Sure, but they're not selling all their Bitcoin. They sell the tops. You know, there is some yeah. moon for everybody. <laughs> it's definitely not 16. Yeah, you had a moon <laughs> because you sold some Bitcoin to get Jupiter Broadcasting off yeah, yeah. the, the the ground. For me, the impossible price that I could never see Bitcoin reaching that it reached was 20K. It just, you know, when we were dealing with it, you know, below $100, it didn't seem possible that it'd ever get to 10K. And then when it got to 10K and it fell back, and that was really, you know, there was a lot of volatility around that time. It never seemed possible. It was unbelievable. So 20K was like this ludicrous price goal. Right. And we know that in the next bull run, it's going to punch through 100K for sure. Why wouldn't it? It's going to be an incredibly constrained 
market. There's not going to be a lot of new issuance from block subsidy. And most of the supply will, again, have filtered into HODLer's hands. And so all those newcomers to Bitcoin who are going to FOMO in, institutional and retail and whoever, they're going to have to buy it at a price that would make a HODLer want to sell it to them. And so that's going to be a high price. When we first started the show, the price was significantly higher, right? And you remember there was, there was a theme of a couple of questions that came in. One was, what do we do about all these miners that seem to be centralizing the power? But I think we see, we're seeing what happens right now. You know, this bear market, it cleanses that out. And the other one I, I, that we responded to on the show was, well, how come, you know, how come you guys are so excited about Bitcoin as being an enabling tool for humanity when it's only the rich that can buy it? And so it's just propagating more rich people. And, you know, Bitcoin is just going to lead to a, a new generation of more rich people that were already rich. But it is these bear markets that allow anybody to get in, right? Anybody that has any real likelihood of being able to invest into anything could DCA 10 bucks a week into some sats. And you're going to have potentially two years because we're already 13 months of having a good price. You're going to potentially have two years, two and a half years of a low price that you could be DCA into. These are the moments that redistribute the sats from the institutions and the weak hands into the hands of those that have the most conviction. Somewhere on the higher 80s, like 86, 88 percent of uh, the Bitcoin supply is being hodled in long term wallets just sitting there. People are holding on to it. What's on the exchanges is like a tiny percent of the overall supply. And that dedication, I think, you know, like that's that is like you're saying, it's 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 insane. It's remarkable. It's true conviction. And these bear markets reward those people and reward the people that are DCAing in now while the price is low. You've probably seen the meme dad where there's several versions of it, but like it's a black and white cartoon and it's two different desks, two different ticket booths. And the one is Bitcoin at $16,000 and the other one is Bitcoin at 60,000 and the one at 60,000 has a huge line. And the one with Bitcoin at the current price, nobody's nobody's buying at that price. In a bull market, everyone says they want to bottom, they want to a dip so they can buy it. And then you know it's a bear market because the dip is here and they're just not buying. No one can bring themselves to do it. There's something about the psychology has changed. It's like they say, it's impossible to catch a falling knife. When the price is falling, it's hard to catch the bottom. It's hard to know where the bottom is. You start to think about it. That's why I think people who can DCA dollar cost average into their investment portfolio do so well because you take the decision making out of investment and then it becomes just this habit and habits are the way to really build over time. Unfortunately, there's not really a way or maybe there is now with HODL HODL to DCA in a kind of private way. Most of the DCA options require KYC. And I think that KYC, know your customer where you have to give up your identity and personal information in order to interact with a financial system is really, really dangerous because Bitcoin isn't going to succeed because things are going great in the fiat world. It's going to succeed despite the problems in the fiat world that are going to drive people to an alternative financial system with better property rights and less restrictions. So if you had to give all your personal information on your way to getting Bitcoin, I believe that your national government or somebody will get that information and want to take your Bitcoin from you. I think that's the bull case for Bitcoin. And so I'm very concerned about KYC, know your customer, anti-money laundering rules, because they're basically an attack on Bitcoin self-custody and sovereignty. Because sure, you can self-custody your Bitcoin, but if the government comes knocking on your door and says, jail, or you give me your Bitcoin, 
you're going to have to give them your Bitcoin. Yeah, especially when they can prove that you have it. That's the thing. And uh, the only way to avoid that situation is to never be in it by not having that KYC link. And that is tricky. When I think of the long term about that, the, the nice thing about DCA is the fact that I can just set it and forget it. And it does become a long term thing automatically just without me having to even pay attention to it. I've set it at an amount of money where I don't feel like it's enough necessarily. I mean, of course, I'd always love it to be more. In fact, maybe a goal would be that I could steadily increase it. But if I were to some reason lose it all, it wouldn't necessarily break me, right? So I feel like even though I long-term am very, very bullish on Bitcoin, I feel like I do insulate from some of the risk in the way that I DCA. But what I'd like feedback maybe from the audience, maybe people have a technique out there is maybe there's a way you DCA the fiat into like a, a special account and then you use something like RoboSat. So you actually do the ultimate purchase of the sats, but the funds that are being allocated for that purchase are getting automatically allocated to wherever they go. So that way the, the actual like fiat transaction part, that part's automated. It sits in an account somewhere and maybe once a month or something, I sit down and I, I use that account to buy some sats on RoboSats. So maybe it's a PayPal account or a cash account or something. I wonder if the audience has any any tips on that they could boost in. Because that might be one way to, to DCA and still do it KYC free. I mean, my kind of bet is both like a DCA and a kind of strategic buy from time to time. And those are always KYC free, but the DCA stuff, I'm going to have to coin join. We obviously need to discuss coin join and privacy techniques more in the show and maybe have more of a tutorial approach. I've been really interested in join market for a while now, but haven't talked about it. So hmm. that's probably a, an important subject because it's something that any, everyone can do. I saw this article on Nexo from a website I've never heard of before. It's kind of interesting. Nexo is a crypto exchange that I've heard grew out of a Eastern European payday lending service. Uh-huh. Okay. In terms of shady crypto businesses, I think Nexo is really towards the top of that list. And they have a lawsuit going on with three former customers in England, where it revealed that it believes its customers only have the right to request withdrawals. They don't have to withdraw, like give them their money. They can request the withdrawal. And basically, Nexo issued their own token, just like FTX and Binance. And Celsius. And so that's a huge red flag. So they're basically printing money and putting it on their balance sheet and speculating with it. And what happened was three, quote unquote, fintech investors, which I read as DGEN traders, they ended up with something like $126 million on the Nexo platform and tried to withdraw it. Oh. And Nexo only allowed them to withdraw it once they gave them 60% of their Nexo token. So I think that basically Nexo is this illiquid token with zero value and probably cashing out and giving them dollars or Bitcoin or whatever for that token would have tanked the price and possibly tanked the Nexo platform. So they kind of had to prevent these people from selling all that Nexo to get funds off yeah. the platform. Right. I imagine that's what happened. Nexo, uh, by the way, um, their uh, tagline is the right place for your digital assets. They also push really, really hard one of these MasterCards that gives you 2% back. The other thing that they push extremely hard, and I looked into it, I don't know, probably sometime last year, they have a lending platform that uses your crypto as a collateral. 
And if you own a lot of their Nexo token, then you get better terms. And if you have a lot of their Nexo token, you can get like really low interest rates. That was one of the things Nexo was really popular for is if you had a bunch of some scam coin or Bitcoin, you could give them your keys and lock it up in there. And if you were willing to like, you know, take some of your crappy Ethereum and convert it to Nexo token, you could get really favorable loans. In fact, there's a, a YouTube influencer. I don't know if I'll name her. Maybe I won't name her. But uh, she did a whole ongoing series on YouTube about how she just lived from Nexo loan to Nexo loan by using her collateral as the price was going up. And this was kind of like a thing that got hyped. And then, you know, the market turns and now you can't get the funds out. And they even brag about it. Well, they don't brag about it, but they make they make it clear like, oh, yeah, you know, you, you can't actually necessarily take it out. Yeah, we sometimes disable that button. Just so awful. And I, I remember poking around and looking at their platform. I created an account to go check it out. The way they shield that Nexo token reminded me exactly of how Celsius, which is also a red flag. I was going to say, Celsius did the same thing. Yep. And this is where they claim it has utility. This is where they claim, well, the, 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 the token clearly has utility on our platform. Therefore, it's clearly worth something. This is exactly what Sam Bankman-Fried said. And as we pointed out, he's a very unsophisticated thinker when it comes to these tokens and Bitcoin. So I would just say that Nexo is clearly a suspicious character and anyone who does business with them or promotes them is complicit in the inevitable blow up that will wipe out all of their customers. Just going to leave it at that. I mean, I really hope the value for value can work out for Bitcoin podcasts at scale because it is just so, so much better in this space. If you don't have to worry about that brand influence and if the audience is the number one person writing the bills, you know, paying the checks, it's such a better alignment for this particular space. Anything that touches money and finances, that's why I'm a big proponent of value for value in the boosts especially for this type of content and all these creators, you know, you and I know a lot of names. We have a lot of names on the tip of our tongue of people who have taken money from FTX and Nexo and Celsius and, and, and so on. Yeah. And it leads to a completely toxic, misleading media space. At the same time, I'll be frank, I don't think value for value works today because it's tipping and tipping is not a sustainable model. You can't think of it as tipping. It has to be something better, bigger. It has to be like people have to really consider like how much does a movie cost or a cable subscription? What is the real value? Right. And I think that you only get there if podcasting 2.0 develops to the point where if you're using a podcasting 2.0 app, we can provide additional streams that give more value. I mean, we don't have any advertisement. Well, we have one advertisement, but we could do like an ad free stream. We could do a stream where we have those images and whatnot streamed with it. So you can look at the charts we're looking at as we're talking. I mean, stuff like that, I think, because then if people can get used to say paying a couple Satoshis an episode, that scales really well. If you have thousands of people paying a, you know, a completely inconsequential amount of money for them, that scales really, really well. But we have to get to the point where people realize that free content has a price that is being subsidized somewhere. And sometimes yeah. that kind of corrupts the entire process. In my opinion, value for value is also a show format. And that's where I think it's going to be the most tricky. And the more you embrace the format, the more adoption you have. And I, I've been experimenting with this idea across the JB shows, where there's some shows where it's it's kind of just slightly integrated and we've kind of just sort of shoehorned it in as part of the feedback segment. And then there's some shows where we've integrated it more deeply at the content level. And in those shows, what ends up happening is kind of like this ongoing, evolving dialogue 
with the boosters in the audience and it has become something a little richer and as a result like linux unplugged has been at the top of the boosting charts for weeks because we've it, it's it's more integrated in it's 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 kind of created a deeper connection with the audience but it kind of really also dictates a big portion of showtime it dictates part of the show flow it's a it's a tricky balance and i don't think most podcasts can get it right and i think so it does kind of just turn into tipping and uh, that like is like i mean i bet you if you took all the sats that have ever been boosted into this pod ever it might cover maybe a month of expenses maybe which are not not extravagant expenses but yeah so i agree it definitely it has room and i think there's more as more people begin to adopt it there's going to be different implementations of it but at the same time that overall philosophy of the audience is the one that is the primary source of revenue the listener themselves instead of being the product they're the ones like the podcast is the product they're the customer not the product yes and it's a shift from an attention economy to a value economy and that those aspects of value for value i think are the fundamental things that shift the incentives for the podcaster or the youtuber or the quote-unquote influencer right influencer is such a cringe word oh god i know it kind of implies that they're influencing you not in a good way they're kind of tricking you a little i feel like that's built into the implication we need a term that's like that implies like sourcing through all the noise and delivering the signal. That's what we need. I'm beginning to feel like maybe we're some sort of crappy journalist. Maybe journalism is being rebooted. And this is just like the very beginning of it again. Right. Because if you talk to people who consider themselves journalists, they have this whole, to me, slightly boring inner monologue about like, what is good journalism? Is this good journalism? Is that? And for us, maybe because we constrain ourselves to a a sort of a limited repertoire of of topics that we feel pretty confident that we know there is an answer on, or like our opinion we think is valuable, it's easier for us to not get into sort of the broader meta question of what is good journalism somehow. The access to information on the internet allows there to be topical niches that can now be served and you can have an expert in that field. So instead of a journalist who's covering everything and they kind of live and die on their sources with independent media, you can be the source because you can go do the research. You have, you know, it really a lot of times comes from a, a passion. And so you're a, you're kind of a, a local expert, right? You're, it's like, it's the difference between local news and national news. The national news might mention that there was a storm in your area, but the local news is going to be out there actually covering it with the camera and the reporter and talking to the people and, you know, like knows the road names and all that kind of stuff. Oh, you're, you're a big fan of local news, right? I, I actually, I love the local news during the weather. I just love it. I don't know what it is. My wife calls it weather porn, but I love watching all the different reports. I'll pull them all up <laughs> and watch them when they're out there in the snow. It's my favorite thing. Well, my favorite thing are adverse legal judgments against Craig Wright. How is that for a lead-in? Nice. Yeah, my favorite thing is having a laugh at Craig Wright. This trend where people are asking Craig questions that they already know the answer, and then Craig gives them the answer, and it's usually some really like bold kind of snarky response if they're lucky and then they paste the satoshi quote that completely disproves him and says the opposite of what they just provoked him into saying (laughs) this is still going on it's just happened over the last couple of days again and i love it so much 
It's so funny. The backstory is that Craig Wright sued Peter McCormack because Peter McCormack made some comments, I think, on a podcast or a Twitter live stream to the effect that Craig Wright is a big fraud. And at the time he said it, that was actually a pretty risky thing to say because Craig Wright has this habit of suing people who says it. But now we're a little looser with criticizing Craig Wright. And, and why is that? Well, it's because Craig Wright also was suing Hoddlenot. And Hoddlenot had this judgment in Norway that kind of completely like stopped Craig's Wright's legal steamrolling of all his critics because the setup of the court in Norway, the way they do the inquiry, and the fact that Hadelnot was funded by the OpenSats initiative and others enabled the Bitcoin community to kind of have a landmark lawsuit with Craig Wright, where Craig kind of had to prove that he was Satoshi. And then he's completely unable to prove it because if he was Satoshi, he wouldn't be Craig Wright because Craig Wright doesn't understand Bitcoin, doesn't share any of the values of Bitcoin or Satoshi. And in fact, there is a long history of Craig Wright basically being a financial scammer. And, you know, just on a matter of personality, Craig is a crass, rude, aggressive, petty, crappy person. He really, in my personal opinion, is if you had to have a meal with Craig Wright, you would not be able to finish your meal because he is so unpleasant in his comportment. He's either boring or unpleasant. Nothing in between. So the idea that he's Satoshi is preposterous, but because he has received financial backing from Calvin Ayer, who is a online gambling entrepreneur slash also person with probably a lot of skeletons in his closet, Craig has had the money to basically legally bully anyone who tries to contradict him online. That ended with Hoddle Knot and the McCormack case, which was unable to perhaps benefit from the precedent set by Hoddle Knot's case. You know, McCormack, quote unquote, lost that case, but he was only charged one dollar in defamation. The implication (laughs) being that you can't really defame Craig Wright because Craig Wright has basically no reputation. His reputation is worth about one dollar. But then that British case also had to determine who paid the legal fees of the case. And it seems that Craig is also going to have to pay those legal fees for McCormack, which are considerable. And also that Craig is probably going to serve a charge, which will be another fine for being in contempt of court because he leaked the outcome of the case to one of his BSV chat groups when he was not permitted to do so. Where he's no doubt the king. You know, and both judges uh, in the Hoddlenot and in the Peter case here have essentially said that, uh, look, man, you, you haven't been able to prove that you're Satoshi. So it's kind of reasonable to expect there's going to be debate and dissent from people who don't believe you if you keep on going claiming you are, even though you haven't proved it yet. Now, both judges have basically said that to him. That seems like a good thing, right? Like he's this is he's going to have to change tack, I would imagine. I have to say, reading this article, I'm much more sympathetic to McCormack because it looks like his legal fees were $1.1 million on this lawsuit. Oh, man. And even though Craig is going to be ordered to pay them, McCormack still has to pay $1.1 million, even though yeah. Craig mm-hmm. had to pay his legal fees? How does that make sense? I don't know. I, I, that's, that's what the, that's the headline is too, that yeah, Peter has to pay. And you know, he, he tweets quote, the stress of the last four years can't be understated. It has had a significant impact upon me and my family. I can imagine every time I've had to deal with lawyers and legal stuff, it has been some of the most stressful time of my life. This is so weird. So basically 
Craig has to pay part of the cost of the proceedings, but McCormack apparently has to pay 900,000 pounds of Craig's defense. I mean, goodness, I feel silly talking about it, like we're talking about something really stupid, but this is pretty rough for Peter. Yeah, especially since, um, you know, the judges acknowledge that Craig can't prove that he's Satoshi. So they're really providing over a completely broken system and they know it goodness yeah so yeah he's he's uh unfortunately he's on the hook for nine hundred thousand. does that permit him his questionable sponsors (laughs) (laughs) he's got to pay the bill somehow i know he's oh man yeah i don't think he's gonna make that up and boost he did he did uh, boost enable his podcast a while back but i i don't think he's (laughs) he doesn't read any boosts why would you boost in there right yeah 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 yeah, that's part of it. You can just send him an email. You know, he says he reads his email. Or maybe he doesn't do say that anymore. For him, though. He used to you know, say he read his email. There's an element of it could have happened to one of us. You know, Craig went after him in a jurisdiction that's particularly friendly to those types of cases because he knew exactly what he's doing. And Craig's using the legal system as a weapon when he can't appropriately prove it technically. To me, going after these uh, influencers has always felt like a prelude to going after developers and actually going on the attack. So he, you know, he wanted to use these as ways to parlay into going after actual developers that are working on core Bitcoin stuff. And that's always been my concern with Craig's shenanigans. His whole plan was to weaponize the legal system against key people in Bitcoin and essentially force exchanges to rebrand his crappy token BSV as Bitcoin and then essentially trick the market into buying his token. That was his plan. Does it sound silly? Yes. Did it cause a lot of anguish? Yes. What do you think will get resolved first? Craig's crazy legal cases and this whole debate around if he's Satoshi or not, or FTX customers getting made whole? Well, I don't think that either will be ever resolved. (laughs) So that was a trick question. (laughs) Because the Craig thing only goes away when Craig says, sorry, y'all, I was just a liar and a fraud this whole time. And he'll never say that. Right. He's never going to do that. He may fade, but he'll never capitulate. And let's not forget, the reason that Craig keeps on saying he's Satoshi is because he was attempting to perform some tax fraud in Australia. And the only way he could make all the numbers make sense is that he claimed that he was mining huge amounts of Bitcoin when only Satoshi would have been a big miner and selling these Bitcoin and taking losses on these Bitcoin and buying back the Bitcoin from the Mt. Gox hack. He actually claims to own this address, which is the proceeds of the Mt. Gox hack. It's called the One Feeks address. And so if he actually owned that address, then he'd be arrested. So he's completely incoherent. (laughs) You know, I knew that, but I'd kind of forgotten that little fun aspect of the story that... Well, I'm just waiting for Mark and Arthur's next installment in their Craig Wright focused podcast. We, yeah, I interviewed them. It was uh, it's it was very interesting, and it's a it's an awesome podcast. Oh, we should add that to our holiday recommendations. Hint, hint. Because you can just listen to the entire Craig Wright story over 20 hours, and you'll get diaper brain because it's crazy. But you know, it's it's a it's a good production. Hmm, that could be a lot of fun. Well, so now how do we go from Craig Wright to Lynn Alden? That's the whole other end of the spectrum. Maybe the inverse of Craig Wright is Lynn Alden, is someone who 
lives their values, does their best to only say what they think the truth is, and is generally helpful to anyone who they encounter. And Lynn Alden is a investment advisor who sells a research product, which I've bought in the past, which is is very interesting. It's, it's very useful if you're serious about doing your own personal in- investments and kind of self-direct that kind of thing. And she gives away most of the milk for free because she has a monthly newsletter, which includes some really interesting macroeconomic analysis. Her private research offering, I believe, generally focuses on specific companies and specific kind of trades, quote unquote, that she's working on. And so that's kind of more like you could actually just do that. But her free product has this model portfolio that you can just follow along for free. So she'll actually list a portfolio that you can kind of buy. And it's if you do all the same trades that she's doing, it's like you have a free hedge fund manager, kind of. But sorry, it sounds like I'm doing a bit for Lynn Alden, not a sponsor of the pod. But come on, Lynn, how about a sponsorship? (laughs) But um, the macro analysis section of this newsletter will be no surprise to listeners of this podcast. It focuses on essentially the basic problems of the global financial system and how while the cryptocurrency industry has attempted to address these problems, it's basically failed. And the essential issue is savings. It's very, very difficult to save in any currency other than dollars. And it's hard to save in dollars too. And so most people in the world have a savings issue. They don't have a vehicle in which they can save value into the future. And they they have a payments issue because most fiat currencies exist in only one relatively small economy. They're not interlinked easily. You have to get into dollars to kind of link with another economy. And as a result, you have trouble conducting business across national boundaries, which limits the sort of reach of smaller companies. And it creates this kind of unfair market where larger companies that have the ability to pay for the infrastructure and overhead to have payment options everywhere, they get unequal access to markets that smaller companies can't have any access to. That's a... (laughs) kind of a big problem. And the idea of using cryptocurrency to circumvent this problem, you know, has basically been part of the Bitcoin narrative for 10 years. And actually, the block size war, when Bitcoin Cash split off and became this large blockchain, and Bitcoin remained this small blockchain, this was part of the fight around, is Bitcoin supposed to be used for payments? And Bitcoin answered that question with the Lightning Network, which is a layer on top of Bitcoin that performs instant payments very efficiently. And Bitcoin Cash attempted to do that with large blocks. And in retrospect, the large blocks approach has many, many problems. That said, many smart people didn't see that at the time. And I think that's something we kind of miss in hindsight. Barack, the lightning slayer who created the BitMatrix automated market maker on the liquid sidechain, originally was a big blocker because scaling blocks linearly sort of made sense to him. And the security costs and centralization costs to that were less obvious back then. Now it's more obvious. So this is a really interesting article about the general problem around savings and payment throughout the world, how the cryptocurrency industry has attempted to address that and generally failed. And then there's some portfolio updates if you're into that kind of thing. It is always kind of interesting to check in on that. This is a great read too, if you just kind of want a really good sound analysis of 
reminding you of what's so great about Bitcoin, even in the middle of this bear market that we were talking about today. You know, what she touches on here, too, and I've definitely felt this with Jupiter Broadcasting, is we've had several times where we've had really difficult to had to maybe not even do it situations to pay developers and free software projects and and contractors that worked for the for us that are just around the world and sometimes there's like maybe paypal doesn't work over there or they have a moral objection to it and then depending on which routes are then available to us there's like greater and higher amounts of costs and, and negative compromises that you have to take to be able to wire the money and it, it was it's it was shocking. And when I worked at a large corporation, they also had their own set of limitations and and were very inflexible about what systems they were willing to interface with financially. So it even narrowed it even more. And so while there we had a budget of thousands of dollars to give to free software projects, I actually was having a hard time giving the money away because we couldn't find a compatible interface to transfer that value. It sounds odd, right? Like, oh, why can't you, you know, you just pay a developer? Because if they're in Germany and they're using German, like, do they even have PayPal in Germany? Like German PayPal, US PayPal very well might not let you send to that account. Now that we're in a world of Bitcoin, you can just say, listen, spin up a Bitcoin wallet. I'll send you Bitcoin. You deal with the local currency situation. And any smart person or average person can deal with that. Like people are actually pretty good with dealing with these money problems locally. But doing it on your end is really, really difficult, I think. It's funny though, because it's uh, every time too, I talk about finances for the business and, and, and whenever it comes to like moving funds or reorganizing accounts, it's just crazy the the hoops we have to jump through and when i look at it from a bitcoin perspective i just have to laugh at how antiquated and how uncompetitive the current financial system feels compared to to bitcoin yeah the end of our news section is a link to paul stork's new drive chain company called layer two labs this is a company that is focusing on the bip 300 sidechain paul calls it drive chain they have six designs in development already. Uh, two of them are exact clones of altcoins. So one is an Ethereum sidechain, one's a Zcash sidechain. And why are they cloning altcoins? Aren't altcoins bad? Well, no, not necessarily. They're bad because they're not decentralized and they're insiders controlling the supply potentially and getting seniorage benefits. And that distorts the incentives of the whole project. But there might be some actual technology there. We criticize Ethereum a lot, the way it uses data, the way the nodes are very heavy. So isn't an Ethereum drive chain just hypocritical? I don't know. I mean, the cool thing about a drive chain is because that drive chain data is taken off chain, it's it's not on Bitcoin. We can essentially on chain using a Bitcoin wallet, send Bitcoin into the drive chain. We could do some crazy Ethereum stuff tornado cash, automated market maker, whatever. And then we could come back to Bitcoin, never having to go through an exchange or a custodian or a KYC on-ramp. That's pretty cool. And that's what drive chains, I believe, will enable. So I'm super stoked to see some progress here. And just, I hope it all works out. You know, I'd love to talk to, hopefully we'll talk to them soon and find out what they're doing. Maybe this is our first sponsor in the Bitcoin space. I don't know. The Layer 2 Labs, making every transaction a Bitcoin transaction. Uh, They say their mission is to eliminate all altcoin and fiat transactions, leaving only Bitcoin. You know, I do agree with their their point here that we need layers on top of Bitcoin. You know, you have the the base layer, obviously, that's incredible. You have the lightning layer. That's another, that's that's like a layer two. That's 
been remarkable. And I could see the utility of of kind of having these other layers on top. This, I have to admit, part of me is like, this is a fantastic idea. We should be going full-fledged. And part of me is like, this feels like Maxi's trying to square the market demand for some altcoins while also trying to make it all possible to be on Bitcoin, right? Like there's, I feel like a future where it's only Bitcoin, Ethereum eventually collapses, or there's some future where several cryptocurrencies are continuing to operate alongside of Bitcoin, you know, because maybe like, you you know, you got your Salooners, I don't know if it'll be Salooner, but you got your Salooners that have all this corporate VC Silicon Valley interest. There's no coin called Salooner. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And I can see like those just live and exist and do a lot of this kind of lift because the tech companies want it to, you know, like the Linux foundation even has in partnership with IBM has like their hyperledger blockchain that they run. That is just always going to be around, you know, and there's always going to be these other cryptocurrencies. So I think the question is going to be years down the road. Is it something like, you know, one of these side chains on Bitcoin and, you know, utilizing the Bitcoin decentralization security or is some of this lift getting done by some altcoin that managed to survive the regulatory storm that's coming their way? Or maybe some something in between. I think there are two arguments against drive chain or maybe just one. Okay. The best argument, I think, is that the whole point of altcoins is for a centralized party, the developers, the founder, to mint money and cash out. That's actually the entire point of every altcoin. It's a pump and dump. That's the value market proposition that the altcoins bring. And the fact that it does anything (laughs) is just unimportant because it's the pump and dump is is the whole point. And so drive chains don't solve that because you're taking away the ability of altcoiners to do pump and dumps. So no one's going to like drive chains. You're going to be so bored with them. I personally disagree with that. I think that that criticism is sort of right in that the pump and dump takes over the altcoin project. It, it turns it into the main activity. At the same time, there always has to be something there. The most garbage altcoins that are just copy paste, uh, dog Bitcoin, coins. dog coin oh, clones. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're clearly garbage and there's not a lot of development, not a lot of activity. And, you know, frankly, I think the price generally reflects that. Ethereum's, the insiders at Ethereum have been able to subsidize a lot of development that has driven waves of adoption and interest in their project. So the drive chain is cool because now we can do interesting development without having to involve tokens. I think that people like Barack, these Bitcoin developers who are working on layer twos, who are really interested in just very outlandish stuff that can't happen on a Bitcoin layer one, drive chains and layer twos are a place for those people to create. And they're going to do it. They're going to do it somewhere. By making it possible for them to do it on Bitcoin and not have to get involved with a altcoin scam, that seems positive to me. And also there is some Mm, functionality. I mean, Zcash has some really cool novel privacy technology. It's just the fact that there's a Zcash foundation, a guy named Zuko, and a developer grant built into every block. That's the problem with Zcash, not the underlying technology. I'm tracking. In fact, if I take your logic and I ponder on it for a moment, let's imagine we go back eight years ago or so. If drive chains existed back then, would Vitalik and crew have maybe just made a side chain instead of creating Ethereum? Well, Vitalik might have, but Joe Lubin would have created Ethereum because he's just a financial scammer, right? Yeah, that's true. Right. Again, that's the actual market driver. Right, right. But I, yeah, okay. But yeah, I could see people that want to tinker and actually build things. All right. You're talking me into it. Okay. You want to hear the other criticism of drive chains? Yeah. All right. 
They're too good. What? Yeah, well, that's actually imagine if we get a couple drive chains and they do all the stuff, but it's Bitcoin and the security trade off and complication isn't a big deal and everyone loves it. Now, what if all Bitcoin activity goes onto the drive chain? It might mess around with the, the block uh, fees, the minor fees, the security. That seems unlikely, though, doesn't it? The drive chain might have a bug because it's not going to get as much development attention as the Bitcoin layer. You know, these are some concerns, too. I think that it's probably worth a shot because scaling doesn't seem important in a bear market when adoption is basically stagnant. But every bull market, scaling becomes a sweaty, hot button issue. So things like the drive chain mean that if there is interest, if there is real desire for scaling, you can just turn it on, boom, and people can use it. Whereas with other solutions, you know, Lightning requires this complicated allocation of liquidity across nodes, across a layer two network. Lightning actually has many of the same security issues as a drive chain in terms of if you are somehow blocked from your justice transaction, funds can be stolen. Drive chains kind of have a similar security trade-off. So I think it's a super cool idea and just hope we see more drive chains in the wild and eventually a BIP 300 soft fork. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by Linux Unplugged, one of my shows from Jupiter Broadcasting. And on Christmas Day, the Tuxies roll out. That is an annual episode. It's our third annual episode that we've done where we look at the very best in open source projects, desktop environments, Linux distributions, self-hosted projects, best newcomers to the space, best new hardware for Linux users in that space. We put it out to our audience in a big survey and we have thousands of them that vote. And then we tally up the results and we tell you the top three in each category. So you can find that at linuxunplugged.com. And I think it's uh, episode 390 specifically, if I recall. Well, I certainly voted. I don't think I've listened to the episode yet, though. It's not out yet. It's not Christmas yet. As we record. But who Ah. knows? By the time they listen to this, it could be out already. Against my best judgment, I voted for OpenSUSE. Oh, really? (laughs) It's it's hard to give up. But it's been a rel year for you, you know? It's been I'm, a year of RHEL for you. It's like I don't like it, but I can't stop. That describes it perfectly. It's like a, a point in your Linux journey where you're like, it's not perfect, and I'm much less excited about it, but there's really <laughs> no other option. Yep. In Bitcoin education, we have the Bitcoin Optech Year in Review. This is a absolute epic piece of work that summarizes what happened in Bitcoin Optech for the entire year of 2022. You can just scroll down and absorb an entire year of Bitcoin development in one sitting. Wow. Yeah. It's hard to choose my favorite event, my favorite upgrade. It's probably the 2022 summary of soft fork proposals. Everyone's already forgotten, but it began with Jeremy Rubin beginning a proposal around his OpCTV soft fork, which would enable covenants, which are a way to create a Bitcoin transaction that then restricts how you can use the coins in the future. There was a proposal to create DLC, discrete log contracts, uh, as a way to, uh, as, as another soft fork. Um, there were alternatives to both of these proposals. I mean, there's even some talk about simplicity, the liquid scripting language, which is sort of uh, Barack gave a presentation about at Adopting Bitcoin, which was really interesting. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it summarizes really complicated things into a relatively digestible format. Not digestible enough for me to 
<laughs> speak, but to read, perhaps. It's just a nice list broken down by month, each development, each major development of the month of the year. It is good work. I have done that kind of work for LAN, and it really takes keeping track of stuff all year long when you go to pull that together. Or if you do it from scratch, it'll take you hours. I know. We need to get the writer on the show. They might take over the show. They might make there a good go. podcast. Guest pod host. Do you have a favorite proposal of the year, Chris? There's a couple in here that are pretty great. Of course, we had the issue with like the uh, lightning channel attacks fix going. That felt pretty important. That felt like a good one. Uh, so I was thinking of I was thinking of calling that one out. Um, I like fat air messages because I cannot lie. You other brothers cannot deny. Uh, Multi-sig 2 in May. And of course, silent payments in April. And stateless invoices at the beginning of the year in January. All those feel nice. Oh, in March, lightning pathfinding and zero conf channels. I like the lightning stuff in particular. I feel like lightning is one of the absolutely most exciting areas of Bitcoin this last year. And I've been watching that community thrive as they come up with new stuff and from the back end to the front end. So that's sort of what stands out to me as some of the highlights. Stuff that involves lightning, making it better. We also have a correction. Last week, we were talking about the Casa blog post about how they're adding Ethereum custody. And I think that it sounded like I was calling Casa a custodial Bitcoin solution. Casa is a collaborative custody where they are one of the key holders in a multi-sig quorum. So it's kind of multi-sig as a service. It's a perhaps a good product for kind of people who want their hand held a little, something like that. So I just wanted to make that clear. Hmm. Very good. Good to know. And before we get to feedback, we have our holiday recommendations. There's a link to a podcast from the BBC called The Missing Crypto Queen, which is about the OneCoin Ponzi scheme. Really good journalism. And the season two is out this year with some developments. I think it is an awesome podcast to binge on and even no coiners can enjoy it. And there is a little bit of a Bitcoin angle. There's a Bitcoiner who's involved in the story who really comes out like a white knight. So check it out if you want something to listen to over the holidays. And also is a link to Dr. Bitcoin, which is a podcast about the Craig Wright saga. If you really want to learn a lot about an odious human being, that is the podcast for you. <laughs> Check out episode 37, Interview the Dr. Bitcoin Pod, to listen to my interview of the two creators of the Dr. Bitcoin Podcast. Nice. I have kind of an off-the-wall recommendation. If you're looking for a holiday watch, I think it'd be kind of worth checking out Pirates of Silicon Valley because it gives you a taste of how Wild West the uh, early tech industry was. And I think there is some uh, equivalence to the uh, Bitcoin and crypto space now and how we start things start really wild and crazy. And some in some ways, it's the funnest time to be in it. And I think Pirates of Silicon Valley captures that. It can be kind of hard to track down, but I've seen it posted on YouTube over and over again. Um, it is available for streaming like on Vudu and a few other places, but you can probably find it online on YouTube if you look. It goes up quite often. I've watched it a couple of times on there. Which brings us to feedback. Remember, you can get in touch, Bitcoin DadPod at ProtonMail.com or at Bitcoin DadPod on Twitter. Consider joining our Matrix channel using a Matrix client-like element. Details in the show notes. Open Source Federated chat. And we got a boost from Baffo, 10,101 sats. Baffo boost the O'Leary bust. Thanks, Baffo. Good boost, Baffo. Good boost, Baffo. Adopting Bitcoin boosts in with... 
4200 sats. Always a pleasure to listen to you both. I need to check out the self-hosting show you guys recommended. By the way, wouldn't self-hosting a Bitcoin bank make for a good episode? I know some nice FOSS software for this purpose, smiley face. (laughs) It would make for a good episode. I'm slowly warming Alex up to the idea. I'm trying to get him to at least set up a lightning node or or an Albi wallet so I can get him in on the split and, you know, start getting him some sats and some boost messages and get him excited. Because once the messages start coming in, it becomes infectious. So I think that the self-hosted show should host the Galoi wallet because that runs in a Kubernetes cluster. And then the Bitcoin dad pod can do something more modest and we can host LN Bits or CoinOS. <laughs> I like it. That'd be funny. A crossover. Crossover episode. Uh, Tier boosts in with a thousand sats. If you have not read it, take a look at The Creature from Jekyll Island by J. Edward Griffin. This is a book about the founding of the Federal Reserve. That is a famous book, and it's full of bizarre details that really make you question the legitimacy of that institution. Ooh, yeah, I've heard about that book before. I've never read it, but that does sound fascinating. Scott came in with a thousand sats. The IMF and the World Bank episode finally helped me understand neocolonialism. Thank you for the help. And thank you for the boost. We got a batch of boosts, too, from folks that didn't send a message, but uh, True Grit sent 6,000 sats in. Mr. Badger Mustard sent in 5,978. And C-Dubs came in with a series of boosts using the Podcast Index webpage in Albi with a total of 30,303 sats. Our baller booster of the episode. Thank you, C-Dubs. Thanks so much, C-Dubs. Yeah, you can send a boost in like C-Dubs did on the Podcast Index site if you have Albi, or, of course, you can get yourself a classic podcasting 2.0 app. Classic. I don't know why but they're great. Uh, I'm back on Podverse after a new update and Fountain also had a new update. I've been kind of bouncing back and forth. Podverse just added CarPlay support. If uh, you're an iOS user and you've got support in your car, that's super, super nice. They've recently tweaked their sleep timer and a stats streaming setup that's better than ever. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Thursday, December 22nd, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with... Uh, Me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Happy holidays.